Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 489 for September 18th, 2019. On today's show, vocalist Jane Monheit. This show is supported by its members without whom the Jazz Session would not be possible. I am trying very hard to make this show and my other podcast into my living, and you can help me do that by joining today at thejazzsession.com slash join. There are now two membership levels, $5 or $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. This week, Jane Monheit starts a run of shows at Iridium in New York City in celebration of the 20th anniversary of her first album, which we'll be listening to throughout the show, starting now. I'm very happy to welcome to the show Jane Monheit, and uh, as I was saying to Jane when I invited her on the show, I went back into the archives to listen to her first appearance and realized to my horror that this, in fact, is her first appearance. So somehow in 12 years, I never booked her on the show, but I'm very happy to make up for lost time now. Jane, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So as we, uh, as people are listening to this, if they're listening to it when it comes out, today is the 18th of September, and that means that tomorrow you begin a run of dates at uh, Iridium in New York, which runs from the 19th of September through the 21st, and although I find this hard to believe, it's in celebration of two decades since your first record, and I wonder if you find that hard to believe <laughs> when, when you think about I- it. I kind of do. I mean, I still feel pretty young. <laughs> I mean, I'm in my 40s now, but I mean, I guess I look back and it really has been my entire adult life doing this. I made that record right out of college. So, yeah, when it's you been look, pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I wonder when you look back at past Jane, the one who made that record, wh- who was she? What was she like back then? Oh, I mean, I, I was 100% of a different person in this business. Um and maybe in my personal life too, but not as much. I mean, not, not as much as changed there. Um, but I was, you know, this terrified little, you know, green, naive kid. And, you know, they turned me into this perfect little princess and I thought I had to behave a certain way all the time. And now I do and say whatever I want, you know, so it's pretty different. (laughs) Uh, I actually don't know, although uh, you and I are about the same age, and I've been in the jazz world mostly on the radio side, essentially kind of mirroring the time that you've been making records. And so I feel like while I have known of you, and uh, we both have an upstate New York connection, so you know we're kind of floating in the same circles for a while, I don't really know very much about how your career began. How did you go from college to recording? How, did were you discovered? Did you pursue? Uh... Big time. Okay. <laughs> Monk competition, baby. I mean, oh, that's, that's right. Of course. What it is. Of course. 
for so many of us, you know, I was in, I was already playing loads of gigs around New York in college. I actually have never had another job. I've, I've been playing gigs. I started in high school when all my friends were, you know, getting jobs doing, you know, whatever, working at the mall or whatever. I was singing at weddings, you know, and so moved to New York City. And one of my professors at MSM instantly started calling me for gigs. And, um, and so I was already doing a ton of that. And so um, I had a certain kind of level of experience. And when the Monk competition for vocals rolled around in 98, I was a senior in college. And my teachers, specifically Peter Eldridge and Roland Vasquez, um, we're like, you got to do this. I had never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. And I was like, ah, whatever. Okay, fine. I'll do it. And I did. And I did not make the semifinals. The original, the first panel of judges did not accept me into the competition. And then the heads of the Monk Institute at the time overrode her. And we're like, no, we want this kid in. And they brought me anyway. And then I came in second to Terry Thornton, who was 63 and I was 20. So I got a lot of attention because I was so young compared to the winner. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then it all just happened from there. I met my first record label, my first manager at the competition, and everything started like right there. It must have seemed like a whirlwind. It was nuts. It was completely nuts. It was crazy. And it was just not what I expected either, you know, in a lot of ways. But it happened so quickly. And I'm so grateful to those people at the beginning. I mean, people like Carl Griffin, Joel Dorn, who passed away almost 11 years ago now and I still miss him daily my manager Marianne Topper at the time they gave me a serious launch that I don't even know if I remotely deserved you know at the time but it was amazing Smooth That's interesting to hear you say that. I often wonder about people who become famous young if there's, I mean, is there like an imposter syndrome issue that rears its head or were you too young to even think about that? You were just riding the wave of whatever came at you. I was too young to think about that. And I had never doubted myself. Nobody ever told me that I couldn't do this. Do you know what I mean? Every teacher, every family member, every adult around me, all the kids around me, everyone was like, you got this, Jane, you're going to be a star. You know what I mean? So when everything started happening, I was like, okay, I can do this. I'm prepared. I'm ready. And then the whole world went, no, you're too young. This is terrible. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm too young. I have to be old for this. But I grew up listening to all these recordings of these, the vocalists that we all worship when they were young and they were great then too. And young people have something to say. What do you mean I have to be an old lady here? You know, and that really bummed me out. And to this day, you know, I'm very much, I'm very vocal about the fact that I think young vocalists have plenty to say to us. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it was weird. And then everybody attacked my looks like crazy. And that was weird too. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, Strange time. <laughs> as if you had maybe gone to a lab and been made to look the way you look. Like, it's not... <laughs> it's well, just, it was... just DNA. It was, right? I, had, I had half the people going, oh, she's too sexualized. What is this? Meanwhile, nobody did that to me. That's just who I am. I'm just that broad. And then everyone else was going, oh, my God, she's so fat. She's disgracing our screens. We can't even listen to her. We're so distracted by her hideous obeseness. Do you know what I mean? There was so much of that. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. Really? And let the industry get into my head for about five minutes in my 20s. And I lived on, like, Diet Coke and starved myself and got really skinny for a second and looked totally strange and was the most miserable I've ever been in my life. And then I went back to normal, and I've been back to normal ever since. And nobody messes with me in that regard, and I dare them to. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> good for you. You yeah. know, you uh, you made a good point there, which uh, I think we often overlook because so many of the the greats of this music now seem to us like old people. Some of them are actually old people, but even the ones who didn't <laughs> make it to be old, uh, we because they were in the past, it's easy to think of them all as always having been old and not to think of yeah. like Miles Davis playing with Charlie Parker when he was a teenager and things like that. You know, the, a lot of those recordings, yeah. as you point out, were made by people who were themselves quite young when they made them. And it wasn't odd at the time. We've just kind of made yeah. it odd in retrospect or forgotten that they were ever young. Yeah. And it's, I think it's especially a thing with singers. You know, it's, oh, you don't have any wisdom with the lyric until you reach a certain age. Well, I beg to differ. I do. Because it really depends on the life experience. And if there's one thing I can tell you for sure is we are all experts when we are singing about love. It does not matter how old we are. Do you know what I mean? You sing a love song at 18 years old and you are, you are feeling it just as much and it's just as true for you as it is when you're 45. It's a different message, but it's just as sincere and there's value in it, man. I've got so many young students now. It's like, I'll hear like a 15 year old sing Skylark and it's the perfect lyric for a, a kid that age. And it's the most beautiful moment hearing this, like coming together of the right lyric and the truth and the right person. And that can exist for anybody at any age. Yeah. Don't sing lush life when you're 20, unless you've legitimately been through that. And if you have, wow, I'm sad for you, but <laughs> But you know what I mean? We've all got something to say. It's all worthwhile. I don't know if it's particular to jazz, but it certainly it rears its head in jazz more, I think, because we don't really think twice of a younger pop star or a younger punk musician or whatever thing. No, we about. require them. Exactly. Yeah, that's, in fact, what they're supposed to sing about. But in the jazz world, it's it's uh, in that respect as if there's some gate you have to pass through before you're allowed to touch that material. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I'm respectful of it. I mean, I, I am currently in Connecticut doing some duo shows with Michael Kanan and we're playing Lush Life in those shows. And I never sang that tune out loud after college. Once I realized that I shouldn't be, I stopped until I was in my forties. And now I, I've lived that song and understand it. And that's why I sing it now. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's, I'm respectful of it, but I, but I think when we choose our material appropriately, you know, we always have something really valid to say. And it's about choosing it appropriately. And I really tell my students that, too. Pick the right tunes. More than you know More than you know Man of my heart I love you so Lately I find You're on my mind more than you know 
I was uh, in preparation for this interview, re-listening to uh, Never Never Land in addition to more recent things, but I wanted to go back because it had been a while since I'd heard it all the way through. And uh, it, it, I know you were quite young, but I don't think the record really betrays that at all. I mean, it sounds really self-assured and, you know, it's, it's obviously well orchestrated and well performed and well recorded, which really helps. But I think uh, I don't really hear the voice of someone tentatively putting down these songs on record. I hear someone who knows what it is they want to say and is saying it. Yeah, I was definitely that kid. I've never not had an inordinate amount of confidence in certain areas of my life. In like my real life, like as like a socializing human, like I'm a disaster and a wreck and I'm nervous all the time and I'm an introvert and I don't know what to do with myself. But you put a microphone in my hand and I'm fine. I should just carry one around all the time. It would improve all my social interactions. Just carry a microphone around like a binky or something. You know what I mean? But um, so, yeah, I felt great in the studio. But I also had a team around me that made me feel wonderful. I mean, I had Joel Dorn producing that record. And he was like another dad to me. I mean, he taught me everything he knew. He made me feel wonderful. And he never for a second doubted me. That man was so magical. You know, and, and today, I hate to say I this. Rest- I'm sorry not to interrupt you. I hate to say this, but I think a lot of people. Uh, I Joel was kind of important to me during my radio career too, um, and oh, I, I sure. think was a huge, uh, a huge mentor figure for a lot of people. But I think there are probably an equal number of people who have no idea who it is that we're talking about. So, will you say a word about Joel and and what he meant to you and just who he was? Well, I mean, he was an extremely important producer, um, notably, you know, for his work with like Roberta Flack, Donny Hathaway. You know, that kind of stuff um, produced a lot of the very important early Roberta stuff. And I mean, just the, I mean, the work he did over the years in that world, it just it goes on and on and on. But he very much took me under his wing when I was very young and, you know, it taught me absolutely everything he knew and produced my first three records for me. And I still think about him every day. I produce records for other vocalists now. I absolutely use his method. Um, I use everything he taught me when I'm in the studio with other singers. And yeah, I mean, that man, I, I couldn't possibly begin to express his importance in my life. What are some of the things that you find yourself doing that Joel did when you're producing a record? Well, you know, he really just gets down to the root of it and gets a really got. <laughs> um, I feel like he's still here. A really wonderful performance out of the vocalist. It was all about making the vocalist feel really good and really secure and having it be about them and minimizing the chaos around them and just making the singer really the star of every track and, you know, just supporting them without adding a million bells and whistles, not focusing on making everything too goddamn perfect, like keeping the the beautiful flaws that make something natural and sincere, you know, just keeping a record real, keeping it organic, you know, when you're producing uh, younger singers now, uh, uh, do you find that that need for perfection uh, appears a lot? That desire to this has to be no perfect kind of thing. 
It's funny. It goes, it goes either ways. Some, some both ways rather. Sometimes I'll have a singer who it's like, I really want them to go in and fix it. And they just don't want to, and they think it's fine. And I don't want to hurt their feelings and be like, sweetie, we got, we got to do it one more time. Okay. You know what I mean? Right. And then I'll have ones that I, that I have to talk off the ledge of, no, I promise that was great. Don't touch it. It's magic. Don't <laughs> touch it. You know what I mean? So it's, it's always one or the other, you know? Sky so vast as the sky With faraway clouds just wandering Let's take a quick break from the music to talk about membership. I've been recording interviews just like this one since 2007. I think that's important work, and I think it deserves public support, and I also think that after 12 years, it's the kind of thing I ought to be able to do for my job. If you agree that the Jazz Session is worth supporting, become a member today for just 5 or 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. For $5, you get a monthly bonus episode, early access to every show, and a yearly gift. For $10, you get all that, plus a second monthly bonus episode exploring a classic jazz recording. 41 people stepped up to support the show last season, but if this show is to become my living, I need something closer to 200 people. Are you the next new member? Go to thejazzsession.com slash join and say yes. Now, back to the show. I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised when on the songbook sessions, uh, which came out a couple years ago, uh, Nicholas Payton was the producer and he uh, plays on the record as well, uh, trumpet throughout, and then he plays, uh, I think, piano and organ. And I was a little surprised just at that connection between the two of you. Can you talk a little bit about how that, that came about and what it was like working with him? Man, Nick is one of my dearest friends. I love him so much. And... You know, we had met, you know, in passing, like at a couple festivals, you know what I mean? And I was like totally starstruck around him and like really shy, you know, like I am around most people. And, <laughs> you know, Nick is terribly introverted as well. <laughs> and although he would probably not appreciate that I said that about him. <laughs> but um, you know what? He's not he's not introverted. He's not. He just. He doesn't have any sort of like extra that like like he's so like he doesn't he doesn't need to just like make random small talk with people like everything he says is important he he like reserves his energy for like things that matter it's not that he's introverted it's like totally different from that you know what i mean yeah. i don't know he's just he's a really interesting man and someone that i just deeply love and respect and just such a dear friend i love him so much but anyway so we kind of like knew each other and had this like mutual respect and then sort of like talked on social media a little bit. And then we sort of landed in a place where we both had the same manager and she knew that we kind of, you know, appreciated each other's um, work and said, why don't you guys work together? And we were both like, yes. <laughs> That's how it happened. <laughs> yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what those sessions were like that produced the album? What, what, 
uh, you know, how much and what kind of things did Nick contribute to how the songs came together? Oh, it's just so easy and so fun and so quick. I mean, Nick just creates on the spot like a magician. It's just total alchemy on the spot, man. He's amazing. Half of that um, amazing, I got you under my skin arrangement, you know, like that amazing organ counter melody. He just went in and improvised that. I mean, it was, we just, he wrote amazing charts and then we just went in and it just all, it was the easiest record I've ever made. I'm curious in this Iridium run that you're about to do, I mean, I know the songs that you performed on your first record are Great American Songbook songs, but I'm wondering if you are performing some of those same tunes and maybe how your approach to them has changed over the years. You talked a little bit about some of the things that you've added to your repertoire, you know, as you've gotten older, but I wonder about the things that are still in there from the beginning, how you approach them differently now than maybe you did before. You know, it's funny, almost everything from my first record is still in my immediate, constantly accessed repertoire. Um, and that's for a couple reasons. Number one, because, you know, when you make your first record, it's everything you wanted to do your whole life. So it's kind of like your most favorite songs from when you were a kid and like they stay with you forever. You know what I mean? So I still love singing those tunes. I could never get tired of them. And honestly, they've just changed because my interpretation has changed as I've gotten older. You know, they're about different things. They don't sound innocent anymore. You know, it's funny. My husband when he hears an old recording of me, will say like, oh man, you sounded so much better back then. And my son will say, oh man, you sound so much better now. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, what's the deal with your husband? No, he doesn't, well, he doesn't, he doesn't mean I, he absolutely doesn't. Oh, Ricky, he, my husband, Rick Montalbano, you know, he's extremely well-known uh, jazz drummer. He, yes. He doesn't mean that I sounded bad back then. What he means is he misses my young baby voice because we've been together since we were kids. Sure. So he was there for all that. You know? Yeah. So, um, you know, we have been married for almost 20 years. So, so he, he means when he says that, what he means is he misses baby me. It doesn't mean he doesn't like current (laughs) me, but, but yeah. So, you know, I think they're sung with a lot more, they're probably a lot darker now in a lot of cases. Um, and you know, the band is different. So, I mean, obviously I'm not going to be getting up there with Kenny, Ron and Lewis. I, you know, that's not really my real life. Um, but I'll have Michael Caine and Neil Miner and Joe Strasser with me. So like ridiculous band. Yeah. That's, I was going to say, that's not, it's not like that's the B team. That's a pretty, no, good, that is pretty good group. That is <laughs> when you, when you call those guys in New York city, you're getting, you know, the best of the best. And you know, I, those guys have been some of my dearest friends for decades too. And that makes a huge difference. But you know, the other reason why I still play these songs all the time is because people have been still wanting to hear them. And, like, how much more grateful could I be in life? You know, if somebody wants to hear me sing a specific song, like, oh, my God, of course I will sing this for you. I haven't rushed to make a record in the last few years because all of my tour dates want the Never Never Land show. They want a sort of, like, retrospective show from all my records. They, they, they call it Greatest Hits, but we're in jazz. We know we don't have hits. Right. <laughs> but, you know, they, they want that. They want, they want my older material, and people want to hear it. And so I've... I've just been enjoying that. It's been really nice. Wish I knew Why I'm so in love with you No one else in this world will do Darling, please save your love 
play one of the instruments the the human voice that is most or can be most affected by aging i mean i know in my own case although i still don't have one of those like deep classic radio voices but when i started out i sounded like you know one of the chipmunks and so uh now there's just uh, there's a lot there are things i can do with my voice because i'm older that i couldn't do before and i wonder if in your case you know there's kind of a richness to your voice now that certainly you had a rich voice in the beginning but it was very it was very different now it's i i feel like it it just has that the sound of someone who has sung through those vocal cords a lot and still maintained them well uh, which i think is pretty cool i don't know if you if you feel like there are new things you can do with your instrument that you didn't used to be able to do I mean, a hundred percent. I'm in the best vocal health of my entire life currently. Like it's unreal. Like I feel like a, I feel like a super, like a superhero when I'm singing. And it's, you know, a, a lot of women have enjoyed like really serious vocal health in their forties. Like a, it's a serious time of strength. And, you know, I've heard this from, from multiple singers that are older than me. Generally from opera singers, I'll hear it. Yes, your 40s is a wonderful time, and I'm certainly feeling it. But in addition to that, I've had like a giant nutritional change of life. And it has improved just my entire physical health so astonishingly much. that. And your voice comes with that. You know what I mean? It's part of your body. You can't be a healthy singer if you're not a healthy human, you know. And so I'm in such insane good health, like from top to bottom right now, that my voice is just like cranking. You know, it's great. It's great. Are there specific things you do to maintain your voice? I mean, I know you you tour and play a lot, so you're using it a lot. Are there things you do when you're not singing or things you do when you are to help keep it in good shape? Well, I mean, I absolutely never sacrifice good vocal technique. Never. I never do. Um, Everything I'm singing is appropriate always um loads of sleep loads of hydration those go without saying but it's nutrition is the thing it's nutrition and i think like a lot of singers don't necessarily realize how much that's going to affect them um i'm on a completely anti-inflammatory diet for other health reasons like i've got some autoimmune issues and it's great for that but when you remove the inflammation from the rest of your body you remove it from your vocal cords too you know and so it's fantastic it's great I recommended it to a lot of singers, actually. Yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, you know, given uh, obviously all all people who play an instrument they have to touch physically are affected in some way by the ways in which their bodies change. But I always come back yeah. to thinking about singers as just, I mean, you you can't disguise any of what's happening with your voice by like, well, I can still blow air into this saxophone or, you know, my fingers yeah. still work on the keys. I mean, it's just, it's going to be there or not. And it's yeah. going to sound like whatever it sounds like in the moment. And it that always seemed to me just to be a very exposed place to be in. I mean, there's just no, you can't hide whether or not your voice is in good shape. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's well, a good response. <laughs> no, but you know what, though? I, I can say that I love it because I'm, you know, throughout my, my younger days, my 20s and my 30s, I lost my voice constantly. I mean, I was touring an insane amount, a decade of that with a child homeschooling all day and traveling and playing at night 
you know, I've lost my voice constantly and I never, ever canceled a show. I hear about singers canceling shows when they lose their voices these days. I'm like, no, you don't. You just use that different voice you have today. Don't cancel. I can't hate that. But anyway, um, even, I mean, I know you're damaging yourself, but I can't let people down. I don't know. But I, I lost my voice constantly. And now that I've like discovered this like level of vocal health that I'm in, now I'm like, bring it, bring it, challenge me. You know what I mean? And, but I'm also not afraid of sounding flawed. Like if my voice is messy, if there's something wrong, okay, how do I use that instrument today? What tunes will this be great for? What mood will this be great for? What can I access in myself that I don't normally sing about that this voice will bring out? You know? So I like to just think of it as another way to be creative. When you said you don't sacrifice good vocal technique, can you say more about what that means and also the circumstances in which someone might be tempted to do that? Well, you know, for certain, you know, effects, big screamy high notes, things like that. But there's nothing that you can't do with good technique. You can still do it. Okay, like one of like the greatest rock singers of all time is Ann Wilson, right? Of Absolutely, heart. yeah. She's got just screaming good vocal technique. Her technique is insane. And that's why at her age, she still sounds that good. And she's screaming rock tunes with great technique. It's possible. There's no excuse. You know what I mean? It's R&B singers like Ariana Grande. Great technique. Great technique. You know what I mean? There's no excuse. When I meet singers that are just like, mm, I'm like, you, you're just going to hurt yourself then. And that's that. You know, so enjoy singing for the next five years and then not after that. Is that something you learned very early on? When I was a kid, I desperately wanted voice lessons, but my parents, my family's all musicians, and they were like, no, we don't trust that we'll be able to find a voice teacher out here on Long Island that will be decent, that will, they were worried I would learn bad habits that would damage me at a young age, and they were very smart to worry about that. So what my mother did is she made sure that all the records I was singing along to literally all day, every day of my life were singers with great technique. So I was copying sounds that were healthy. And then when I got to college and I started studying with Peter Eldridge, my lessons were much more about interpretation and improvisation and what it took to be a good jazz musician and a band leader and all that kind of stuff. And when it came to my technique, he would touch on it here or there, but he was just like, no, you're solid. You sound good. Do you know what I mean? We don't need to worry about this so much. And so I went on and I was fine. But then when I was pregnant with my son, 30 years old, and I toured through my entire pregnancy. Pregnancy causes like intense inflammation. I damaged my cords seriously touring through my friends. I sang at Carnegie Hall on my due date. You know? <laughs> so I did. Wow. So yeah. I mean in the little recital room. <laughs> Not on the big stage. But um but yeah, so I, I hurt myself and then I went to study after that with Joan Later, who is like a hardcore technician in New York. She teaches all the Broadway folks. She works with the big actors who do musical films. And I learned some some really protective technical help from her. Some stuff that other singers know that I just wasn't aware of yet. And it really saved my life. The night is like a lovely tune.
when you're touring nowadays, are your arrangements and things like that, are they primarily worked out? Are you guys improvising them on the stage? How does that how does that work, especially since you, you know, as you travel across the country, I know sometimes you have to use different rhythm sections and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we. I mean, believe me, I would absolutely love to afford to take my New York band all over the world with me, but that's not real life anymore. Sure. And the shit, so many of us are breaking it up, you know, to save money because flights are outrageous. You know, it's impossible flying people around the world anymore. It's yeah. Possible. But yeah, I like to have a very arranged show. I do. I like. I like. I mean, obviously, there's so much room for improvisation inside that. But I like, you know, I like being an entertainer as much as I like singing. I like show business. I like putting on a good show and making people laugh and, and everything that comes with that. So, yeah, I like a nice, solidly arranged show. I do good lighting. I like everything. I like all of it. I love being in show business. Yeah, you're one of the very few people I've talked to in the almost 500 of these episodes that has referred to the business you're in as show business. Uh, which, it is? Uh, yeah, I agree. And over the years... Uh, I, this is something I kind of have come back to many times on this show, the idea that particularly when I lived in New York and I would go to shows, you know, five or six nights a week, there were only very rare times when I felt like me being there mattered all that much to anybody making the music. And I'm not suggesting that what I'm describing now subsequently is the only way to make music, but I do occasionally like, for the person on the stage to acknowledge that there are people who came out to see them and that this is an exchange of energy, not just a, uh, kind of a one way deal. And so I, yeah. I like sometimes to see a show. Oh man. I mean, I'm talking through the whole show. I'm cracking jokes. I'm goofing around. I mean, I have the best time up there just being an entertainer. I really do. And the thing is, is, you know, the singing that I'm doing, I'm singing standards. I sing the Great American Songbook. It's like what my life is dedicated to. You know what I mean? People don't even think of me as being a jazz musician. They think of me as being a cabaret singer more than it doesn't matter how much I improvise or how much I know about this music and the history and how much I've studied it. Like when I get up on stage, I'm singing songbook. You know what I mean? And, and I love it. And I'm so proud to be like a torchbearer of these beautiful songs, right? So it's like, yeah, I want to put on a show and have a good time. And that's what my audiences want to see too. You know what I mean? There are people who like, they grew up watching the old movies. You know, they love the Ella versions of things and they love the Frank Sinatra versions of things. And before they loved those, they loved the Fred Astaire version of it. You know what I mean? So I'm giving them that and it feels so good. It's like everything I love in the world. Somewhere in, in the press that you did for the songbook sessions, you talked about one of the main things that inspired you about Ella Fitzgerald, a apart from her singing as singing, was the joy that she invested her music with and, and the way that she made it fun to go see her perform. And that sounds very akin to what you're talking about now as a performer yourself. Oh, man, Ella was just pure joy. You know what I mean? And she, because she was my hero more than anyone growing up, when I, you know, reached adulthood and was like, no, you need to be elderly and also miserable to effectively sing this music. I was just so confused. I was like, what do you mean? That's the exact opposite of what I learned from Ella. And she's supposed to be the queen of this. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, the other thing that I've taken from Ella, though, that I find now as I get older is the most important thing that I take from her is what she left behind more than anything in her legacy was her kindness to others. She 
was so known for just being really lovely to people throughout her work. She never behaved like a diva. She never thought of herself as being more important than anyone else ever, you know, and that to me is inspiring is the way she behaved around all of this, you know. I want to remind folks that if you are in or near or can get to uh, New York City, that if you're listening to this when it comes out in the year 2019 uh, on or around the 18th of September, that Jane is doing a run of shows at Iridium in New York uh, in in celebration of, I still can't believe this is true, but celebration of 20 years <laughs> since her first record, which I guess the calendar dictates has to be the fact. Uh, and that's from the 19th of September through the 21st. And then uh, shows in Sag Harbor, shows in Madison, in Missouri, uh, Hilton Head Island, Rockport, Mass, and many others throughout the rest of the year. And uh, janemonheitonline.com on the uh, tour page has all of those things. Jane, uh, again, as I say, I can't believe it's taken me 12 seasons to get to you, but I'm really glad uh, that we were finally able to do it. And I thank you very much for, for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you about this music. Well, thank you so much for having me. Where dreams are born And time is never planned It's not on any chart You must find it with your heart Never, never land If you like what you just heard, become a member today for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Jane Monheit. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. You'll find them at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. You can follow the Jazz Session on social media at jazzsesh on Twitter, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, or on Instagram at the Jazz Session. I post a clip from the archives each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Instagram and Twitter. Please do rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. You can subscribe to the newsletter at thejazzsession.com. And I hope you'll come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.